The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. For over 35 years, the volunteer staff at KUCI has worked hard to bring you quality music and public affairs shows. Now is the time of year to give something back. Call 949-824-5824 during the KUCI Fund Drive from April 28th to May 8th to make a donation. Your contributions go directly to keeping KUCI on the air. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. KUCI is listener-supported radio, and that's why you may have noticed we have zero commercials. And this week is Fun Drive Week. So if you'd like to help support this station, uh, you can give us a call at 949-UCI-KUCI. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, this show's engineer and sometimes co-host with Mari. If you don't know our host, Mari, let me tell you a little bit about her. She's a local attorney and privacy consultant and is the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in this county. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, and ABC News, the O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows. She had her own 90-minute PBS television special, which aired again this year, called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this show and other great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Good evening, Mari. Hi there. This is a great week for supporting public radio. You know, Lloyd and I are volunteers. That's right. We don't get paid. We do this. This is a labor of love. And from what all that we know, we're, we are the only show that we know of, at least, that has a show dedicated entirely to privacy issues. So if you enjoy listening to this show, and I know we get a lot of feedback that people do, please help support KUCI, and you can call 949-UCI-KUCI, and you can even donate and, you know, and say support privacy piracy. By the way, if you go to KUCI.org and you look at the banner on the top that says Donate Here, you can click and see all the premiums. And on there, you're going to see CDs. You'll also see privacy books that you can get by donating. So make sure that you go and look and see what you can do. And we give you a gift back when you give us a gift and help us to bring fantastic guests like the one we have tonight. So who is our guest tonight? Well, she actually works for a nonprofit, too. I told her we were going to you know, talk about the fundraiser, and she said, Oh, that's okay. I'm used to it. And by the way, I I have to tell you, Lily, that I donate to EPIC. EPIC is the Electronic Privacy Information Center. And uh, remember when Chris Hoofnagel was on our show? And he he, uh, was a great guest, too. And he he actually listens to our podcast, he told me. So I'm so excited. We're getting kind of techie. Of course, we're not as techie as Lily. Let me tell you about Lily. Lily is, I'm so excited that she's on our show. She's coming to us all the way from Washington, D.C. She's the Associate Director of the Electronic Privacy Information Center in Washington, D.C. And the issues that she focuses on are nanotechnology, surveillance, children's privacy, civil rights and privacy, coalition development, spectrum census, and electronic voting. She has a lot to say about voting because um, Lily also serves as the coordinator of the National Committee on Voter Integrity. Now, that committee, the NCVI, was created in 2003, and remember, that was a response to all the concerns that we had over the reliability of voting systems. For example, um, remember what happened in Florida with the big brouhaha in 2000 when we had those voting machines that weren't uh, working? Hanging chads. That's right. So um, Lily also was the former public policy coordinator for the Association of Computing Machinery. And prior to that, she served as special assistant to Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, who um, is a Democrat from Texas. She worked on a a lot of issues ranging from energy and information technology, election reform, and education policy. So she has this great background. It includes 
gosh, over 20 years' experience working with a, a wide range of civil rights and grassroots organizations, voting and civil rights, and privacy issues. So she comes with a, a BA in political science and a master's in public administration from Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas. So she's a Texas girl. And uh, she's a former systems administrator who has designed and developed websites for congressional offices. I think we're going to steal her and bring her out here for us. Coney also uh, contributed to a chapter in the New York Times bestseller uh, by Move On called 50 Ways to Love Your Country. And she's also written many other articles, and I've, I've read a lot of her testimony, which was really impressive. So I'm, I'm so thrilled, Lily. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you for helping you know, support our public radio, too. And I'm glad you uh, understand about having to raise money because we are totally nonprofit. Uh, we understand that at Epic, we are as well. Okay, so first of all, tell us a little bit more about the National Committee on Voter Integrity and what's happening with them right now. Uh, the National Committee was formed um, when it became apparent that the solution sought after the 2000 election was to move the nation toward completely electronic voting. Um, there was great concern among the technology community that the integrity and security of elections could be jeopardized if the technology itself isn't under great scrutiny to be sure that it does, in fact, collect and retain votes as they are cast by voters and then count those votes accurately. Uh, the mission of the committee uh, is to uh, bring together experts on voting issues from across the country to promote constructive dialogue among computer scientists, election administrators, voting rights advocates, policymakers, the media, and the public on the best methods for achieving in practice fair, reliable, secure, accessible, transparent, accurate, accountable, and auditable public elections. The committee to date is focused strictly on working on transparency issues with the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission, which was created as a result of the effort by Congress to address voting issues uh, that became apparent after the 2000 election, and then bridge the communication gap between traditional civil rights and voting rights groups and technologists who are also committed to ensuring voting rights uh, in this nation. You know, Lily, when I was reading your testimony, uh, you kind of broke it up, and it was great. It was real helpful for me to understand. Could you kind of explain? We've talked about transparency when we talk about, for example, um, you know, the, the the credit reporting agencies that we should be able to see what you know what they're doing, or we talk about it when we're talking about companies like uh, ChoicePoint and LexisNexis, these information brokers, that there's no transparency. Could you kind of talk a little bit more about what you mean about transparency in the voting arena? Well, transparency comes in several level, levels uh, regarding public elections. You have the work that the elections administrator does in order to facilitate the conduct of an election in a municipality. Uh, you also have transparency as it, as it reflects on the technology that's being used in order to facilitate voting. Uh, and, and we look at this in two different ways. Elections administration is a public event that voters should have the right, the media should have the right, contestants on the ballot should have a right to understand the decisions that are made that lead to the type of technology that's used during an election, the type of procedures that are applied, what type of ballot design is implemented that should be done by opening up the uh, process to public meetings, to uh, comment and review of uh, decisions that are being made, and no decision should be made behind closed doors. And making that information available, you can do it through websites, you can do it through public notice, you can do it through comment periods, um, but making sure that that avenue of communication is not one way, but two-way, that voters and, and constituents, uh, uh, community outside of the process have an opportunity to comment on what's going on and the decisions that are being made to make sure the election is not just something they show up and participate in, but is actually a, a reflection of their, their desire for what should happen on Election Day. Regarding technology, uh, anytime contracts or agreements are made with vendors to provide voting technology to facilitate public elections, if those agreements have non-disclosure components to it where no one can ever look at the technology, 
No one is allowed to investigate the efficacy or the, the claims of the vendor that the technology is actually sound. And in the event that there is a problem on Election Day and walls are thrown up or, or, or resistance is put forth, not just by the vendor, but by the elections officials, because they signed an agreement that said they have to work to protect uh, access to the technology itself, that defeats the whole purpose of transparency, the public's right to know. Right, and it could be rigged. I mean, basically, if you've got somebody who's, you know, let's say getting paid off, and we know we've seen this in Congress. I mean, there are some people who are unscrupulous, right? I mean, something could happen that these, uh, you know, companies could, in fact, if there is no transparency, something could go on that could, could screw, um, skew an election, right? And more importantly, it leaves the question in the minds of the people who are participating in the, in the election. If there's no transparency, and let's say there is a very close election, and we know that in the United States we cannot handle close elections, but there are close elections. There was a close election in 2004 right. in the state of North Carolina, and it was within a margin of, of error. The machine failed to rec record over 4,000 votes, and there was a state agricultural commissioner's race that was within that margin of error. But the ability to reconstruct how those individuals voted, was it was impossible to do that. So in the minds of people who participated in the process uh, and the, the, the candidates whose races were left in doubt, they thought, and, and rightly so, that something's wrong with this and how could this happen. So the fact that there was a problem and then the corresponding need to provide transparency, the mechanisms weren't there for that, it left in doubt the whole process, and the way it was resolved was not by the voters. Right. It was resolved because of court action and because of the willingness of one candidate to just give up and, and not continue to, to contest the election. Right, right. And this is scary stuff because, you know, you had quoted Thomas Jefferson in, in one of your um, – you know, one of your testimonies. And it, I mean, that really is our liberty, the fact that we can vote when you think about how long it took for women just to be able to vote, right? And and what has happened in countries where they can't vote. This is really the key to our liberty, isn't it, Louie? It is, absolutely. I mean, and, and that's been the focus that EPIC has taken on, on this issue in the National Committee for Voting Integrity. It's not a partisan issue. It's a sustaining of our democracy issue. Right. If we don't sustain the institutions, we don't keep the democracy. And it, has, it makes no difference who is in power or who wins or loses. If the institutions of, of our democracy are not functioning properly, that is the greatest threat. Right, and it's, it's the trust that we have in our government that we have a legitimate system. You know, I also noticed in, in your testimony you talked a lot about privacy, voter privacy. Can you kind of go over um, how privacy really, you know, there's many aspects of privacy in the voting arena. Could you kind of share that with us? Yes, there, there are two different things. There's ballot secrecy right? and there's voter privacy. Uh, the history of voting universally has proven that if people's votes are not secret, are not, if they don't have the ability to cast their votes in secret, you have incidents of intimidation, right. incidents of vote buying, and other forms of coercion that may be brought to bear to influence how votes are cast. Any system of uh, self-governance must rely on the will of the people without it being influenced or fettered by external forces. Um, and if there's a situation where someone can know without a doubt how a particular person voted, they can provide a system of reward if they vote the way they want them to, or they can provide a system of, uh, of punishment, a punitive action, if they didn't vote the way they wanted them to. And there are some issues today on the table about ballot secrecy that have not been on the table since uh, probably uh, before the last issue, uh, last era of major election reform. Uh, there's an electronic voting technology that is attempting to apply a paper audit trail, but putting it on a continuous spool of paper, which require, which only requires that someone make note of who went to which machine and in what order to be able to say how each individual voter voted hmm. by looking at that spool of paper. Wow. That's scary. Huh. It is, especially if, uh, if uh, the... Even if it, and, and this is the other thing that's important, even if no one ever does that, if there's a sense that someone could, 
the fear that someone might exactly may influence the way people cast their ballots. And if we can think of it, somebody can do it, right? Absolutely. <laughs> it's too easy. It's, yeah. it's one of those things where we've testified before the Elections Assistance Commission. Uh, several members of the National Committee for Voting Integrity have written about this, uh, warning that this is a bad design. This is not the way to go. Uh, but in the vote, voluntary voting uh, guidelines that the Elections Assistance Commission promulgated, there is a standard for that very design. Huh. In in the in the uh, guidelines. Now, when you complained about this, and I saw that in your testimony, and, and all of you, you know, and you have some very high powered people on that committee. What what's the response? The 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 one question I, I received on that uh, in that particular uh, testimony was, uh, is there any way to fix this so that the privacy concerns could could be addressed? And the reply, my reply to them was, the the trouble and effort it would take to fix this. It would just be easier to redesign the machine, right. not to use the paper roll. Right. Somebody but has it, some investments, though, right, Lily? Right. And that, <laughs> that's the issue. The vendors have already made that investment. They're pushing to, to have that investment um, uh, okayed by the authorizing of the standards, and so they don't have to change their design, and that, that's pretty much the goal. It will be up to states to implement technology that is, that protects the privacy right of their, their voting um, public. Well, let me introduce you again because we have people driving by who are w- wondering who we're talking to. And this we're speaking tonight to Lily Coney. She is the Associate Director for the Electronic Privacy Information Center, and she has done tremendous work in the area of privacy and technology and voter rights. And I want to say that because we have KUCI here, and this is fund re- week, fund driving week, we want you to know that be, that we are volunteers, Lloyd and I, doing this show, and we donate to this sh- to uh, KUCI, and we are asking that you do the same. That all you need to do is call up nine four nine K. What is it? Nine four nine UCI KUCI, and you can get someone to speak to you, and and maybe it'll even be Lloyd, and we will take uh, your donation, and you will get a gift. So you can go look at the premiums right at our website at KUCI.org, and you'll see privacy books. You'll see CDs. You'll see all sorts of fun stuff that you'll get in a gift from us when you give a gift to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine. So let's get back. We're talking to Lily about voter privacy. And, um, Lily, I had another question. So what, you know, let's kind of talk about California because we're sitting here on the campus at the University of California, Irvine. What's happening now? What's the big brouhaha in California about voter privacy and voter, you know, the whole voting system? Uh, You have... uh the major issue right now that's facing California voters is a newly implemented statewide centralized voter registration database. Um, the, the implementation scheme is a match or do not match, and if, it, if they are comparing voter registration applications with the state's DMV records, and if there is a discrepancy, a difference, a number different um, on the application for voter registration and the DMV uh, uh, records that are uh, that the state currently possesses, then that person is not registered to vote. It's very important for those who newly register to verify their registration with the, their county registrar's office. Um, it's unfortunate that they they've taken a, a, a match or do not match um, uh, protocol, and it, it's partially the fault of how the Help America Vote Act was um, written, which requires that uh, this statewide centralized voter registration database match records with the Department of Motor Vehicle and other public uh, service offices. The difference between how voter registration is done and how DMV um, licenses are issued, you go to a DMV office, you're there with a clerk who reviews the application, who ensures that the application is accurate, and, and that information is coded into the system uh, right while the person is there. So accuracy is a, is, a, is, is a higher priority. With voter registration, the registrations often happen far out of sight of a 
county registrar's office. The information is written in by the voter themselves or sometimes a spouse or a child, depending on what is allowed by that particular state. And there are more errors. There are also errors in the in the coding process when documents are transferred or the information is taken off the card or the, the form and, and put into the system. So the opportunity for error could not just be the, on the part of the voter. It could be on the part of the person who did the data entry. It could be on the part of the, how the two systems talk to each other. Uh, there are numerous opportunities for errors to occur. The, the, advice by uh, the Association for Commuting Machinery's report on statewide centralized voter registration uh, databases is that that should be a beginning of a process to vet whether the registration application is correct or the person is should be legitimately registered, not an opportunity to, to throw people off the rolls. And so I think there is going to be some serious um, consequences uh, for voters on Election Day if these issues are not resolved. Right, so voters really have to be proactive to see that they're that they are registered correctly, especially if they're new or they're re-registering in a new in a new neighborhood, right? Right. It's unfortunate because that's not the way it should work. Right. You, you should not. The onus should not be on voters to do that. But the 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 counties are trying in their, to to address some of these issues by calling voters. But voters are so wary of identity theft that right. they are not willing to communicate with someone calling them on the phone, uh, asking for personal information, uh, and basically saying it's to correct your voter registration. That's not an experience voters have uh, to look back on and say, well, this sounds plausible. So they're getting a lot of resistance in that. So the, the optimal way to do that do this actually is to have the voters call a, a number and let them uh, communicate that information directly to um, the registrar or at least the Secretary of State's office to provide that information um, to, to get that. Right, there Deal should with be accuracy like, issues. Right, there should be like an 800 number that they can call right, in. Right, exactly. It's, yeah. it's, a better, it's better for the voters' privacy. It, it cuts out any opportunity for an identity thief to, to take advantage of this situation. Right. Um, and, and also then people won't think like that if they're going to get an email that it's phishing, you know, telling you, right, give exactly. me your social, right. I don't know if you know, but in Orange County, just, just within the last couple months, we've had this big scandal where um, it happened to have been the Republican Party, but it could have been the Democratic Party. The Republican Party was, ha- you know, um, having people f- sign up, uh, you know, for certain things that they you know, sign ballot not ballots, but sign documents that say that they support certain issues. And the people didn't realize it, but they were really changing from Democrats to Republicans. And there was a big scandal in the newspaper because it wasn't transparent, basically. People didn't understand, and the newspaper investigated it here and said, wait a minute, did you, did you change your designation from Republican to Democrat? And people were finding out that they apparently did because they started getting in the mail, you know, flyers for the Republican, you know, candidates. So that, that wasn't very transparent either. So, you know, you're right. There's a, there's a lot of issues with regard to, to uh, voter privacy and um, especially in California now, with making sure that, you know, you are designated the way you want to be designated and that you are registered if you want to be registered. Yes, uh, you're right. Both parties engage in activity that is not in the voters' privacy interest, whether you make a contribution to a particular candidate or sign up for an email list or go to a website and register for during the campaign cycle. That information is freely shared with their uh, with other candidates, with uh, other issues, with other advocacy groups, and it's not just the email. It's mail coming in your your, your mailbox, which ostensibly becomes junk mail if you have no interest right. in being on the mailing list. Um, it would be good for both parties to commit to fair information practices to allow voters to opt in to have information shared with particular candidates or, or doing a cycle of uh, elections. If you want to receive information from people who are running in the primary, you should be able to opt into that. If you only want to receive information from people who make it for the general election, you should be able to opt into that. If you want to only, if you do in addition to that want to receive information about particular causes or activist groups, you should be able to opt into that. I think it has a chilling effect on people's willingness to participate in the political process. Voting should not be the only means for people to engage in the political process. They should be able to do so at every step of the process. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, that's absolutely right. During one of the recent elections, I was getting all sorts of phone calls, and I and I said, gee, I, you know, 
I want to opt out of this. <laughs> I don't want you to keep calling me, you know, because it, when you sign up for the do not call list, if they're a political candidate, they can still call you or have these, you know, electronic recorded messages tell you vote for me tomorrow, you know. And, exactly. And you really don't even have a way of opting out of those very easily. That's true, you don't, because um, when the law was passed, uh, Congress <laughs> opted out certain types of uh, contact, and one right. of them is political uh, yes. speech. Yep. And, and, you know, so. I know, so I was stuck with it. I, I did call and uh, complain, and I actually got into a little bit of a heated discussion saying we have every right to call you and I, okay okay i don't i don't like it i think i'll just change my party designation well and and, and the, that is the danger um right. not being attuned to the desire of people to have their own space to have privacy uh we look at the registration on the do not call uh list uh, right. that's being maintained by the Federal Trade Commission. I look at it as votes for privacy. That's, uh, there was over 80 million numbers registered, and it's, you know, usually it's at least two people might be associated with, with one number if it's a home phone number. Um, people are very interested in managing their, their personal time, and candidates, campaigns, uh, talk about privacy when it comes down to what the government is doing, but you are not walking the walk when you conduct campaigns. You are definitely <laughs> hitting into some rough territory because voters have have desire for privacy, and, and I'm sure they will express it in their own unique way if uh, campaigns are not willing to develop some sensitivity about that. Right. You know, with regard to the Social Security number, people all the time ask, you know, should, do we have to give our Social Security number in order to register to vote? What about that? Well, it depends on the state you're living in. Some states do require an SSN. There are other, if you're, the Help America Vote Act implemented one uh, provision that states that if you are a newly registered voter and you're registering by mail, it requires the last four digits of your, SS, your Social Security number to be included on that application. If you do not have a Social Security number, the state should assign you a unique number for your registration. Um, I think strong, where Epic believes strongly that the Social Security number should not be used for any other purpose other than for which it was created, which is uh, tax purposes and benefit purposes. Uh, we're finding too often that the Social Security number is finding its way into the, the hands of identity thieves, uh, and it's, it's coming from the, the fact that the, the government and private sector are using the SSN as a means of keeping up with people, making it into a de facto national identification number. Um, there are some states that require it. Uh, the state of Virginia was, was the state that required the SSN and not only required it, uh, because voter registration uh, documents and lists are considered public information, they would sh share that information with third parties. Uh, Epic was a part of a, a case, uh, a Greiginger uh, case um, on that issue uh, uh, in the state of Virginia, and that law was, uh, it was affirmed by the court that that was wrong, that cannot require the use of the SSN uh, and, and make that information publicly available. So uh, in that case, it, uh, it was successful in pushing back on the use of the SSN. Uh, your listeners should always know to, to be very careful uh, with their Social Security number. They should never carry that card with them anywhere. They should not use it on applications. They shouldn't use, the, use it uh, for in a doctor's offices when they're filling out forms. Uh, there are only a few, very few times you need your Social Security, and it's not associated with government uh, uh, benefit or paying taxes. One of those is opening a bank account. Right. Uh, and then when that happens, you can require that they tell you why they're collecting it, what law is, uh, 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 gives them the, the right to do that, um, and, and, and get that information in writing, um, because it, 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 they have to be doing it as an agent of the federal government for a specific purpose, and they should be communicating that. Right. And I know you guys have done great work on the Social Security number, and we've talked on this show many times that the Social Security number is the key to the kingdom of identity theft, so you're absolutely right. But uh, how about requiring a, uh, a person to present a valid driver's license or state ID card when they're, when they're getting ready to vote? What do you think about that? Well, it puts a burden on people who don't have those documents. And it's the whole idea that you have to have 
a specific form of identification to authenticate yourself as the voter on the reg- registration rolls on election day is coming out of, you know, smoke and mirrors. There is no evidence that that this is a significant problem. It, it's it's the kind of thing where people keep yelling that it's a problem, and, and they, they're getting reactions from policymakers as if it is a problem. But when you look at the facts and look at the, the numbers and, and do the investigation, there isn't anything out there to say that you need to have more and more stringent requirements in order to control access to voting. We know that you can have multiple forms of identification that are easily available to people, which may make it less costly for them in order to, to reach that burden. Um, in the state of Georgia, they passed a law stating that it would be there would only be state identification uh, documents, a state ID or state uh, driver's license, would be accepted on election day. Uh, they presented that plan to the Justice Department for preclearance, and somehow they approved it. Uh, but two federal courts uh, uh, after that struck it down as being unconstitutional, and, and in fact would, would result in a poll tax. Uh, states should be cautious about pursuing um, those types of uh, actions that would limit voter participation uh, based on no real evidence that there is a problem with uh, people who are voting uh, illegally. Uh, well, and there know, are other means to try to reach to to address those issues. You know, Lily, we had some a, a huge issue like that here in California, and of course, we have a lot of people that are coming up from the from Mexico and, and other countries that are not here legally. And um, there was a, a big issue about the possibility then and the allegations of those people voting. And you know, they're not citizens, and they don't have a right to vote. I mean, isn't that one of the the, the what what I have. think is interesting, what we see and have seen, and this is a, this is <laughs> this is how it goes. You're going to hear a lot about that right before the election. Right. Afterwards, you're not going to hear anything. And if you follow the stories to through the investigation, you're going to find. And this has happened in the past. I'm not going to say it will be continuing to be the case, but in the past, most recently is 2004. The investigations found either no finding that that was in fact the case, or the the cases were so few that they they did pursue and some uh, legal action uh, is taken if if you know if the jurisdiction um, finds that someone has done that, uh, which in fact becomes a, a greater dissuader from the few people who might consider it not to. And there are some some laws on the books now. Even if you are legally a legal resident in the United States. If you cast a ballot in a federal election, you immediately lose your status and are deportable. That is a huge disincentive for participating in, in federal elections. There are some states and some localities that allow non-citizen voting. But in those areas that involve federal elections, there are laws in the books. The new immigrant communities know about them. And the last thing anyone wants to do is bring themselves to the attention of official government if they are not here legally. Uh, it's just not a, um, it's not a beneficial thing to do. Uh, but I think that the, the, the citizens, the residents, the people in California who work on elections every day, who do elections administration, will be the best source for telling you whether that is a real problem or not and then what the solutions might be. You, you can't ha- hold a driver's license and say, oh, this means you're a citizen. This means it's okay for you to right, vote. Right, you can have a fake driver's license. Right, and, yeah. it's, and a driver's license isn't for that purpose. Right. It's been turned into everything from uh, something to prove your credit worthiness to... Um, getting on an airplane. Getting on an airplane. <laughs> and what it's really about is, can you operate this vehicle? I know, I know. I know, we're we're looking for some unique identifier, which, you know, what scares me coming up is, you know, this whole idea of having an RFID, you know, injected into you, radio frequency, you know, identifier, or having biometric information that is going to be used. You're going to have to put your thumbprint down or your fingerprint or your iris scan. All those things are coming. And and what do you think about that? Well, what we found is that uh, it doesn't scale well. For instance, the uh, the fingerprint. Now, I, I presume that in security settings where you know you have a known group of people you're working with, or whether it's biometric scan of some type, that you, this, this might work um, much more effectively than what we've seen in in the um, 
the use of uh, uh, travelers, uh, the watch list Trusted errors. Trusted traveler thing? Right. Yeah. Trusted travelers, watch list problems. We have uh, Freedom of Information Act documents on our website. If you go to epic.org uh, and go to FOIA notes, which are, it's on the right side of the screen, you can go down and you can see where U.S. visit fingerprint mismatches, where people were uh, false uh, false negatives, where it said the person was not the person or not allowed to enter, and in fact they were. They were crews of airlines. Uh, lots of complaints about uh, errors in that, that uh, matching system. So, and this is not, this is not a huge population right. of people. So if now you add the whole, <laughs> the whole adult population of the United States trying to do a fingerprint matching system with an error rate that is even 3%, Right. That's astronomical. Sure. A 3% lot of, of all the matches that, are, that go out there say they're false positives right. or false negatives. Then the, the whole idea of screening out people who are a threat or who are, or should be allowed access, or, or, that's defeated. And, and that's the number one problem we're seeing with these systems. But they're going out as if they're perfect and there are no problems, and the public isn't hearing this. This is not the, in the brochure that's uh, right. that is a, a showing to uh, Congress people and senators or others, that the decision makers that they're trying to get to invest in these systems. But Lots of money. Lots of money out there. Exactly. And the consequences to the uh, consumer are going to be great. Yep. Well, we gotta we gotta take a little, a uh, little break to introduce you again. I just want to tell everybody that we're sp- speaking with Lily Coney, who is the associate director of the Electronic Privacy Information Center in Washington D.C. You can learn more about her at our website at kuci.org/privacypiracy, and you can also go to epic.org. They have a fabulous website, and you can see testimony by Lily. You can see lots of the writings of all of the fantastic attorneys there and uh, and all the people who are doing great work at EPIC. And the reason we can bring her to you all the way from Washington, D.C., is because we are public radio, and we have a privacy show that other, you know, commercials uh, radio doesn't have. So we have something very unique, and we're giving the gift to you Lloyd and I are volunteers enjoying giving to you, and we would like you to give back to KUCI. So you can call 949-UCI-KUCI right now, get on the phone, and you can talk and um, make a donation. And from that donation, you can pick one of the premiums. And the premiums that we've got on our website at KUCI.org, everything from great CDs to privacy books to all sorts of different things that you'll enjoy. And that's our gift back to you when you support public radio. So we're, we're thrilled to have Lily Hiller helping us with public radio, and she's from a, a nonprofit herself. Uh, let's let's kind of talk about some other issues. How about you are an expert on uh, surveillance technology on this RFIDs? We actually had, you probably know Catherine Albrecht. Yes, she, and I have she her wrote, book right here. Yes, she wrote Spy Chips, and yes. she came on our show, and she's incredibly bright and uh, shared a lot of stuff. But how, what does Epic think about these uh, radio frequency identifiers? Well, back to the issue of transparency. Consumers are unaware that this technology even exists or what the consequences are. What, it, it, the technology is so refined that it can be included in every commercial project, product imaginable. Um, and, and that is the real threat. That if the technology allows uh, remote tracking of items that are personally identified with a particular person, then that person can be under surveillance without their knowledge. Now, whether it is commercial surveillance where a retailer wants to know, do you have my product on or what product do you have that we currently sell? Uh, do you have an interest in a particular thing? Um, what store did, are you going into or going out of? Uh, that kind of level of um, monitoring it would be very attractive to the commercial sector, as well as to those who who have a strong sense that if the more information they have, the more uh, control they can have over the environment, and the less likely it would be that a terrorist attack would be successful. Uh, there are arguments on both sides of why this technology would be beneficial. The question is, where does a consumer come into play? Where does the, the citizen voice 
get heard in this process. And at this point, they're working so hard behind the scenes to push the technology out. By the time most people know about it, it will already be in their homes and on their persons uh, and, and many products uh, that they, they, they use without their knowledge. We're pr- pushing for one, a couple of things. One, transparency, that consumers are, are made aware of the technology if it's included on a personal item. Two, they have the option to kill that chip before, at the point of sale, at the point of the transaction, that the chip no longer transmits information. As you know, an RFID tag or the, this little device tiny, has a little tiny. antenna. Yeah, it's very tiny. I mean, yeah, so it could be the they, grain of There are devices that they you could even weave it into a, a sheet of paper. I mean, right. it's, it's very tiny, and the little antenna. Uh, is is the opportunity to transmit information. Now, what happens, a reader will send out a signal, and the antenna will respond. It's like a call and response. When it gets that signal, it's going to disgorge whatever information it has unless there's encryption to protect information from flowing from it. It could be anything from the the name of a product that you have, the lot number, and the, 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 or the size, to any personal or any information that may have been written to that chip could be transmitted. The largest debate that happened around this technology uh, involved the passport. Right. Uh, and uh, the pushback was so strong from technologists and privacy advocates that the uh, State Department redesigned uh, the uh, the the design of the use of the technology. They ostensibly initially designed it so that it would broadcast the information to anything around that had a reader. And readers are pretty cheap. Um, you can get so them on the internet. You can get them on the internet, and I think the last time I looked, it was like maybe hundred bucks if right, you get a reader. Right. And if someone has a reader, it could be so small that it fits in a pocket or a purse or a bag. Uh, if you're standing on an ele- a crowded elevator, if someone has the technology on a credit card. Um, you see where I'm going? Yeah, hidden, so, hidden, hidden so, in the wall. Yeah, right. And and because it's not fully out there, uh, it may not be attractive enough to thieves to really pursue. But at some point, the tipping point is going to happen, and consumers will be out there. And and when they find out about it, it'll be um, uh, in situations that they uh, would not make them feel feel very secure or safe. Um, it's it's uh, those are one of that's one of our top issues that we're tracking and and the push on this technology is pretty hard and also the 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 unwillingness to to actually put out a lot of information in the public space so people can discuss it because if they discuss it if they're aware of it they can start uh, asking questions about it is it included in my store loyalty card is it in a jacket or a shirt I'm buying it is it in a pair of shoes. This technology is out there, and it is in those products. So if you don't know to ask, and the store clerk may not know. So if you don't ask and and put the onus on the the vendor or the supplier or the manufacturer to provide that information to you, chances of being made aware of it are pretty slim. You know, I are we have uh, Senator Simidian out here in California. You may know that he had, he introduced uh, legislation to safeguard RFID, which you know he had so much opposition from industry that it didn't pass. But he was on our show too, talking about the fact that the senators in California didn't know it, but their their badge had an RFID um, little. Uh, speck in it, you know, an antenna, and it was being read as they walked into the voting room, and the, right. I, and the walls, and they didn't know it. <laughs> See, that, but that's that's the way this technology works. And exactly. if you think, and this is this is the end game. It's not the technology, the RFID tags themselves, that will put pose the greatest privacy and civil liberties risk. Right. It's the deployment of those readers, and if readers become ubiquitous, and the tags are everywhere, then Privacy will be a challenge, yes. uh, and civil liberties may become a challenge. So it's not just working on the, the, the tags themselves that we were, we're looking at. We're also looking at how these readers are deployed. So another avenue for uh, consumers and for policymakers to consider is controlling the deployment of readers. Right. And, 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 and you talked a little bit about encryption. Like, for example, if, if my passport 
or my driver's license has an RFID in it. And many, many states are considering doing that, right? I mean, California yeah. also. And so, um, you know, if, if it has that in it, and it happens to have, like in California, when you sign up for your driver's license, you have to give your social security number. So if that's embedded in there, somebody else can, can grab that. And then, of course, then you've got the identity theft issue. So, right. um, you know, are, is there going to be encryption? What kind of safeguards are there going to be? How far away can it be read? How can it be read? How can it be decrypted or, or whatever? I mean, those are all issues that they, they haven't really, um, you know, they put the technology before the safeguards. Uh, and, and that's why the, the campaign against the, the U.S. passport was so important, because it was a small community of people who were tech-savvy enough to know that it posed a threat and had the resources. Because if you think about international business travel, uh, and you have a passport that's broadcasting to anyone in, in your vicinity, I'm an American. <laughs> Right. You know, and in this day and age, that's not a healthy thing to do. Especially um, if you're in the CIA, <laughs> right? Well, <laughs> I mean, that could be dangerous. On, on, I don't know. Maybe they carry <laughs> other passports. I don't know. But I know. just, just yeah. an average business person or right. a citizen traveling abroad, you really don't need the added risk. Um, and, and you're right. There are considerations about using this technology. The, the industry that is promoting it is pushing hard, pushing very hard to get this technology out there. Uh, they see it as being a cure-all. And it, it does have some applications that are beneficial to uh, right. the commercial sector. If you want right. to keep up with your inventory uh, in the supply chain, use it. I Good idea. Do I that. Yeah. But when it comes to me buying an individual pot, a product out of off a pallet that you deliver to a store, I don't need it and I don't want it. So when when it gets when a product ends up in my hands, it becomes an opportunity to market to me, to track me, to to figure out how to get me to buy things that I may not want to buy or monitor my purchasing habits. I mean, it, 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 right? It, you it, walk in a store, incentive yeah. to to spy on consumers. Right. I mean, so it, I walk to be in honest, a that's what it is. Right. So I'm walking in a store and they say, hey. You haven't bought a new pair of shoes. Right. You know, those shoes worse. are old, you know. Or worse. You yeah. bought that shoe you bought those shoes from my competitor and you could have saved ten dollars if you had bought them here. Right. I mean, it, it, it can get it can get pretty outrageous. Right. Now I think what's even scarier is thinking about, you know, injecting an RFID into my kid like I did to my dog. You know, I mean, that, yeah. that worries me, too, that they're well, going to have well, that for the rest of their lives. Well, it's a couple of things. It was interesting that in, uh, uh, there was a school in California that put RFID technology on school IDs exactly. and had readers in bathrooms. Uh, that kind of lets you know uh, things could be uh, get a little dicey uh, as far as privacy and how these how the technology is used. Uh, there's one other thing I wanted to make sure your your listeners knew about. There's an opportunity for for people to get access to a annual credit report uh, at no cost to them. Right. Now you, you see commercials about free credit report. That's not it. Right. It doesn't require you to pay any money. If you go to Epic's website and type in free credit report. Um, that's epic.org, and it's a search engine, type in free credit report. Or if you go to annualcreditreport.com, they will take you to the website where you can get a free credit report from Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion. You get one every year. You keep up with what's on your credit report. It's another avenue for, to protect yourself from identity theft. Right, yes, and, and I'm glad you mentioned it again. We, we mention it almost every week because I think people don't realize that they have this access for free under new federal law. So I just want to introduce you again and say that we are talking with Lily Coney all the way from Washington, D.C., and she is the Associate Director of the Electronic Privacy Information Center. You can learn more about her as well as the fabulous work they do, all the testimony they do in Congress at EPIC, that's E-P-I-C dot org. Go there and you can uh, learn a lot about not only the privacy issues we've talked about today, you know, that we're continuing to try about, talk about, but many more. And the reason that we can bring you, Lily, all the way from Washington, D.C., is because you're listening to public radio. She may be saying things that the government may not want to hear. She, we may be talking about things that industry doesn't want to hear. But we're not a commercial show, and so we don't have to cut out to anybody. We talk about things we believe in. We talk about things that educate consumers so that they will be empowered and they will have transparency and know what's going on in the world. So if you like this show, you got to help support it. Lloyd and I are volunteers, and we support KUCI. 
and we ask that you also do the same. So call 949-UCI-KUCI, and you talk to one of our DJs, and we're taking um, donations of any, any amount, the more the better, we hope, and then you can get a premium, a gift. If you go to KUCI.org, you can look at what our gifts are. We're giving privacy books away. We're giving CDs. We're giving all sorts of different gifts and restaurants and, and everything that you can imagine is on there. So please help support us this week. This is our fun drive. We only do it once a year. So we ask that you help us out. I know that uh, Lily's so kind to sit here with this because she knows what it's like with Epic. And, and uh, Lily, I do donate to Epic. I want you to know that. I really support all you, all the good stuff you guys do. And we appreciate that. I it's know. very important because when you truly do consumer privacy ad- ad- advocacy, uh, you're not making friends with the industry. Right. You're not making friends with the government. So yeah. uh, money has to come from uh, either grants from nonprofits and uh and donations right and and that's the truth because you know when you're listening to television and radio they they don't bring up all this stuff i mean some things do but they but not like we're doing so we uh we really appreciate it but if you help us out so let's let's talk a little bit more about some other surveillance issues mm-hmm. how about what is um what is backscatter x-ray what is that Oh, that is a very interesting uh technology um it has been around for uh at least the the science has been around for for quite a while. Uh, what they've used it for uh, recently is incorporating it into X-ray uh, technology, something similar to an X-ray uh, technology. Um, and 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 the biggest challenge is that the technology gives so much detail of what a person appears like underneath their clothing that it is a serious uh, privacy concern for those who are not made aware that the technology is being deployed. It's being used in airports around the United States, and it, it looks like um, um, maybe a screen or maybe a circular uh, um, structure you walk into. Um, there, and, and what we found is that a lot of the attendants don't know if the technology is being deployed or not, so they can't answer your question. But if you... Uh, if you if you want to know more about Backscatter X-ray, you should visit our webpage. Type in Backscatter one word B A C K S C A T T E R X-ray, uh, and you can learn more about it. But it was uh, it's been around. The, it was found uh, that this particular wavelength in the spectrum uh, was discovered in 1895, and uh, not much was known about how to use it. It basically is a, a spectrum in the X uh, the uh, light spectrum range. Uh-huh that uh, it's strong enough to penetrate uh, clothing or items uh, that you might be wearing, but it won't penetrate skin and it won't penetrate metal. So anything underneath the clothing will show up very, very well, very detailed, uh, including, you know, details of what a person looks like under their clothes. Naked, naked, huh? Yes. Oh, oh my goodness. I've got to be delicate about this, but it's... (laughs) It's uh, one of those things that um, people might be exposed to if they're going to airport security. Uh, if you ask, the person is probably not going to know what you're talking about. Um, but before you step into something or in front of something, you might want to consider, if this bothers you, uh, you might want to consider having an alternative uh, to that particular screen uh uh, options. What is it like? Um, an alternate screen when you go through and they say, "Oh, you step out of line." Is that what they're using? It well, for? it's not. It, what some of the technology I've seen, it doesn't look like a blind. It looks more or less, you know, it, it could be a, 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 a one flat screen, or oh. it might be, you know, we we have some photos on our website that shows you some designs, but um, it could come in other forms. And uh, the biggest issue is the lack of transparency. Are they? Uh, will they tell you that's what it is? Uh, are they retaining these in- images that are, are collected? Will they be used for any other purposes? Um, these are the things that people should know. And then, because of religious beliefs or uh, personal preferences, uh, individuals may have huge problems with doing this if they know that this is in fact what is happening. Yeah. Uh, there's a sensitivity in our culture about um, being disrobed. Uh, there's a, an issue of. of privacy and, and personal choice 
uh, yeah. that someone should be given the option of, okay, this is the option A and this is option B and this is what this is and this, you know, yeah. and that people choose for themselves. Lack of um, disclosure of information is not the best route for um, for uh, for getting cooperation uh, and using these dis- different types of technologies. Yeah, you know, I had read about that, but I'm going to have to go to your website and see that. Right, um, uh, yeah, it's, it, it has been deployed, so we know that it's in some airports, and so it, it's important that we put the information out. I don't want to go to that way. airport. What airport? <laughs> well, we have some lists. I know uh, Reagan National is supposed to have it, and oh, dear. Baltimore, Washington, and they did some tests down in Miami. I don't know if that's one of the, the airports that they deployed it in uh, as well, but, you know, it, it's one of those things that, that um, you know, people should be aware of and and also the fact that the cost is coming down and um you know there may be other markets for this technology Uh, you don't want to have to wonder about going into your bank or or the federal building you know i mean the federal building yeah yeah exactly and so it's it's transparency is a is a very important aspect to for people to make informed choices so and it should be options it shouldn't be this or or nothing uh it should be an option to do this or uh, something else. Right. When you use the word transparency, that's kind of a... This is literally uh, (laughs) very transparent. This is transparency. Let me ask you, we we don't have a lot more time, but let me ask you just kind of tell us what's happening with Real ID, with the Real ID Act, and what's all this big, you know, brouhaha going on now in Congress with the Real ID Act? Well, it's it's very interesting that uh, they passed this without any debate or discussion. Usually in the debate and legislative process, you can weed out bad ideas or weak uh, parts of legislation and and either decide whether it's worthwhile or not. Uh, But because this went uh, into law the way that it did, a lot of things are left uh, outside the the control of the view of the public. Uh, the Home, Department of Homeland Security is in the process of writing the regulations about how this, this new law will be implemented, and it is looking like it will have such a huge price tag for states that it could double or triple the cost of a driver's license or an identification card. Um, there are some states, like the state of New Hampshire, which is starting its own uh, effort to uh, opt out of uh, participating in the Real ID um, um, requirement uh, um, once uh, it goes into effect. Um, I think it's one of those situations where the whole, the, the revolutionary spirit of uh, people wanting to be free from government weight uh, and control uh, will, will step forward and, 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 and really present a serious challenge to implementation of this, um, this new identification requirement, which ostensibly is a national ID. Right, right. It's scary stuff. Well, we don't have a lot of time right now, but I want you to give your website. And you know what, Lily, you're going to have to come back again because we have so much that we could still talk about. So tell us um, what what other things we can find on your website and tell your website again so that we uh, can, um, you know, have our, our listeners go there and, and visit you there. Uh, absolutely. It's epic.org, uh, and we have tons of information. Whatever the issue is, you just type it in the uh, search engine and I'm sure you'll find something on it. We have uh, information about text, uh, text uh, pretexting where uh, telephone cell records are being sold. We have information on anonymity, on uh, caller ID, uh, census, children's privacy, uh, data brokers like ChoicePoint and others uh, who trade and sale personal information, uh, cryptography, uh, data retention, um, all, just about every privacy issue you can think of, uh, we have information about it on our website, and helpful, useful information for consumers to help protect their privacy. Right, and, and also we have testimony, like your testimony, and Mark Rutenberg, Mark and I uh, testified together last year, so right. you have wonderful right. testimony, you can see what the, what you know, what you guys are telling our senators, um, yeah. And we also have publications, uh, we have reports, uh, we have a, a great epic uh, bookstore with, with great material for, for the layperson as well as the professional, whether it's attorneys or privacy uh, professionals. You can learn about how Freedom of Information Act requ- Act requests work and how to how to launch your own. If you're a person, a member of the media, or you're a private citizen, it tells you everything you need to know in order to find out what government agency may know about you, or what federal agency may 
or know something about you, you can get that information by pursuing Freedom of Information Act request. Right. And you know what? We can also sign up for the newsletter at epic.org. So I just want to thank you again, Lily Coney. You have been terrific, and thank you so much for joining us, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org. Every week we bring you Privacy Piracy with all sorts of wonderful uh, experts on privacy. And we can do this because you are supporting us. Remember, we are a nonprofit volunteer station, so we need your support. Please call and donate whatever you can at at 949-UCI-KUCI. And that is 8-2-9-4-9-8-2-4-5-8-2-4. And you can get things, you know, you'll get a gift back from us, either privacy books or a CD or anything you want. You can look at KUCI.org. So thank you, Lloyd, for being such a great engineer. And thank you all for listening. And please donate. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.